You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. I'm Casey Gilman. The College Connection is a series of lectures from visiting and local speakers given and recorded at the five colleges. This forum provides an opportunity for listeners to engage with the researchers, intellectuals, poets, and authors active within our academic communities. Dennis Childs is an associate professor of African-American literature at the University of California, San Diego. He sees the modern U.S. prison system as a continuation of slavery for the poor and people of color. Childs' talk, U.S. Neo-Slavery, A History of the Prison Industrial Present, was recorded on October 13, 2016 at UMass Amherst. Today, the title of what I'm presenting, uh, U.S. Neo-Slavery, History of the Prison Industrial Present, represents uh, what I've conceived of in my book as as being a genealogy of today's prison industrial complex, which currently encages over 2.4 million people in the country's prisons, jails, and immigrant detention centers. That, does not cons- that doesn't consider juvenile facilities, those numbers. I conceive of my book to be a, a, a genealogy of today's overall situation of legal terrorism against racially targeted subjects, uh, particularly black subjects, people of African descent, but also brown, indigenous, and poor people in general. Because if 2.4 million of those who are engaged in ostensibly or what advertises itself as the most free and democratic country on the planet, if 2.4 million people are engaged, then 70% of those are people of color, mostly black and brown, and a high uh, overrepresentation, if we can use those statistical terms, it almost doesn't work here with such an atrocity, uh, a high representation of indigenous folks, But even further than that, 99.9% of the folks that are incarcerated as we sit here having our conversation tonight uh, would be described as poor, 99.9. So that means that only 0.1% of rich people can commit crimes? Right. I often say in terms of uh, this era of a kind of softening drug war in my student interactions and classes, If everyone in the room who ever possessed marijuana was doing 20 years for it, how many of us would be here? (laughs) So I conceive of the project again as what Foucault and what Saidiya Hartman and others call a history of the present. Um, And in that respect, I'd like to begin with a roll call. And it's a roll call that should never have existed to be read. May 8th, Thurman Towns, 19-year-old garment worker of the Bronx, New York, was killed in New York City by police of the 32nd Precinct. Towns was shot in St. Nicholas Park after police claim he ran away. They sought to question him about a purse snatched from a woman passerby. Towns, however, was found to have a large sum of money in the bank and was known as a model citizen. June 19th, Lorenzo Best, Anniston, Alabama, was killed with four bullets by a police sergeant, J.D. Thomas. A coroner called it justifiable homicide. December, Sam Jones, 35, San Pedro, California, construction worker, was beaten to death by policeman James Graham and Richard W. Clare. 
The policeman claimed Best drew a knife while being arrested for drunkenness. August 11th, James Perry, 41-year-old unemployed war veteran, died in Homer Phillips Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, after being, being beaten by four police officers over the alleged theft of a bottle of soda. Cause of death was listed as intracranial brain hemorrhage. August 21st, Irvin Jones was fatally wounded in his home in Portland, Oregon, when cops entered into his home and shot him in the back with a sawed-off shotgun. The coroner's jury exonerated the police and a grand jury subsequently refused to indict them. November, 70-year-old Miss Nicey Brown of Selma, Alabama was beaten to death by a drunken police officer who was off duty. He beat her over the head with a bottle. The officer was acquitted. The attorney for the policeman stated at trial, if we convict this brave man who is upholding the banner of white supremacy by his actions, then we may as well give over all of our guns to the ends. January 19th, Bobby Lee Joyner, 17-year-old high school student, was slain by Police Chief J.A. Wheeler and Policeman W.E. Williford, who pumped seven bullets into the youth's body, claiming he tried to attack them with a knife in LaGrange, North Carolina. The officers were cleared by a grand jury. William Arthur, in May 18th, was killed in Baltimore, Maryland, while allegedly resisting arrest by police officers. The following day, May 19th, Wilbur Bundley was killed by an officer Nine witnesses stated that he was shot in the back while running. A few, few days later, Isaac Jackson was shot and killed by policemen. This is not the roll call from the last three years, which since Trayvon Martin's murder in Florida has included the likes of Mike Brown, Samuel DeBose, Renisha McBride, Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, Keith Scott, Terrence Crutchett, and Alfred Alongo just recently in where I come from in San Diego. And just days ago, Carnell Snell Jr. in Los Angeles. This is one issued by William Patterson, along with black radicals such as W.B. Du Bois, Claudia Jones, and Paul Robeson in 1951, when they issued a petition to the United Nations charging the United States with the crime of genocide against people of African descent. Today's victims of police terrorism, not bad police training, but a structure of legal violence and what the UN just recently called legal lynching in the United States. The UN just recently said that publicly, that this spate of murders represents a system of legal lynching. Represent, this spate represents an addition to a seemingly interminable procession of premature death, a procession that in the U.S. context began with when the first slave ship pulled up to Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. The writer and theorist and philosopher, the late Eduardo Galeano, in the open veins of Latin America, described this procession of colonial genocide and premature death in its instant that he was talking about in a particular episode as but the latest bead on a very long necklace. W.B. Du Bois described this as old wine in new bottles. Reading up today's situation of incarceration and police violence through a history of the present 
for me speaks to the philosophy of history or what I was talking about with graduate students earlier, maybe unhistory or counter history that the Jamaican or the, the Caribbean author, author Jamaica Kincaid describes as history being an open wound that reopens with every breath. As Toussaint was saying earlier, there, the, there is no past to the past. You might think those of you who read Toni Morrison and her novel Beloved, that concept of rememoring, where the past in terms of its atrocities against collectivities that are racialized under colonialism and slavery is not just relived in the psyche of a traumatized collectivity, but actually relived at every level, from the material to the spiritual, every level to the psychological. Think about that term that you saw in the Patterson document, justifiable homicide, and the way there's a hauntingness to that term. Over and over and over and over and over again, the legal apparatus uses this term, whether it's the murders that we're dealing with right now, the legal lynchings now, or going back to the legal lynching of someone like Fred Hampton as he laid in a, in being, having been drugged by FBI agents in his bed in Chicago and murdered, not because of the hatred that he was spewing, because, but because of the rainbow coalitional, the, the moves towards social transformation for all human beings. That was the danger. The danger of those formations that led to today's iteration of the prison industrial complex. The danger that was represented not by Afros and black, you know, like medallions and leather jackets, but by things like the survival programs that embarrassed the federal government because the Black Panthers were, were feeding more poor black children than the federal government was, that was, was bound by the tax dollars that it was getting to do so. So the work that I tried to take on in the book Slaves of the State represents my trying to hear the voices, the haunting voices of prison slaves past and present. And in that light, not all of the killings that I would like to talk to, to you about today have to do with biological death. There is a way in which the, the U.S. colonial slaveocracy has been built on a process of living death as well, or what Mumia Abu-Jamal describes as the slow death of incarceration, of racialized incarceration. And mind you, there's a lot of talk now about mass incarceration, the age of mass incarceration. But again, from the perspectives of Africans in the US, you, the United States and, and mass incarceration are synonymous. I just wanted to point out here, in terms of the culpability of the law, if you look at this graph, this represents the incident, and remember I mentioned legal lynching earlier. This represents the incidents of publicly known lynchings by groups like the KKK and the Black Legion, starting around the Reconstruction or post-Reconstruction era, era in the 1890s, you see the peak of extra-legal lynching, vigilante white supremacist violence. You see that line on the graph, that plot going down, precipitously towards World War II. Then the other plot on the graph is the incidence of state executions of black people. And you see that, the, that that 
plot on the graph goes up inversely proportional to the rate that the other plot decreases. What does that tell us about the relationship between the practice of state terrorism and the practice of what is called extra-legal or episodic or crazy white supremacist terrorism? That the state itself is the agent of white supremacist violence and white supremacy is not about those people down there with pointy white hoods. White supremacy is the very fulcrum of American empire, the very scaffolding, scaffolding upon which it has been and continues to be built. That is not about hatred of an individual white person. That is about a structure, although that can happen. It is about a structure that reproduces itself through black, brown, indigenous premature death, and what I call the collectivized living death of incarceration that did not begin with Richard Milhouse Nixon's law and order decree. This process began with the process of the Middle Passage and plantation slavery. And it's important to note that as wonderful as the work of Michel Foucault is and important as it is to prison studies, if you read Discipline and Punish, his hugely important text on the subject of the transition from what he calls pre-modern forms of incarceration or feudal modes of punishment to modern and postmodern modes of what he calls discipline, the idea is that punishment moved from being a violent, terroristic, I'm gonna get feudal on your ass mode. Anybody remember that? To a more disembodied psychological Bentham's panopticon, the prisoner disciplines herself mode. The only problem with that is the entire experience of Africans, indigenous people, and others throughout the planet, and specifically in the United States and Europe. As he was writing that the chain gang, for instance, was outlawed in the 19th century in France, the chain gang, the most horrific version of the Chan Gang was still in operation in the United States. He writes the entire text without once mentioning slavery except in a footnote. Slavery was, as Angela Davis notes, a, not only a system of surplus value expropriation, expropriation of the labor of captives, but it was also a system, as she calls it, a system of incarceration. She talks about the transition from chattel slavery to prison slavery being one of a transition from the prison of slavery to the slavery of prison. Why, when you look at pre-1865 regimes of incarceration in the South, was the numbers for Africans infinitesimally small? Because they were already imprisoned on the plantation. That's the reason. And that's why after 1865, they continued to be in prison on the plantation. Um, most of the southern prisons, I'll get into this later, are converted slave plantations. And much, of, and much of what has been converted is the name. Angola in Louisiana used to be a slave plantation. It would say that, Angola slave plantation, or Angola plantation. Romantically, maybe they called it like a, I don't know, some kind of gone with the wind name. Now it's called LSP, Louisiana State Penitentiary. 
and people that are that whose ancestors slaved in plantation fields they're going back to its beginning are are slaving in those same fields right now as we sit here but it's not about the big bad south um, because for me spaces like angola and spaces like this in georgia in the 1930s this is a picture from john spivak's book on a muckraking journalist account of his tour of chain gangs in the South in the 1930s. And what was, was found there and what you'll find in reading Angela Davis's work, Alex Lichtenstein, David Oshinsky, um, Douglas Blackman, and so many more, is that this is not a story of a return to pre-modernity or the anachronistic bad South. That modernity, the move of the, the South into the industrializing image of the North, the supposedly racially innocent North, was based on neo-slave labor and neo-enslavement in general, not just labor. Um, and that is a crucial point, is that slavery is not pre-modern. Slavery is foundational and modern. It is the, the stuff that US and European modernity is made of, along with colonialism. So somehow Foucault was able to write Discipline and Punish and not recognize the moving prison from the chain gangs in Georgia from the 1930s, even later than this. Um, why was it a mobile prison stacking people on top of each other by the threes, as you see here, um, two rows? Uh, in this hot, sweltering place with a hole cut in the middle of it as they're chained together so that they could urinate and defecate? Why was it on wheels? Because they were building the entire infrastructure of the South, including highways and railroads. So they had to be mobile to do that work. All of the roads surrounding Atlanta, Georgia, were built by prison slave labor. It's interesting that this can be so fundamental that U.S. Steel is implicated through Tennessee Coal and Iron, its subsidiary in the South. But most people, how many of you read about neo-slavery in high school? Look around, everyone. So there's an investment in the mythology of progress. Malcolm X famously said, you can't stick a knife in a person's back 12 inches and pull it back six and call it progress. They won't even admit that the knife is there. And in this situation, the most galling aspect of what I'm introducing here, and I promise I'll read a little bit, but I have a lot to say before I do. The most galling aspect of white supremacist, racial capitalist, misogynist practice. There's a lot of terms. I'm in my bell hooks kind of mode. <laughs> but it's, there's meaning. It's not just jargon. The most galling aspect of this practice, I just came from San Diego where a refugee from Uganda, Alfred Alongo, escaped with his family from a war-torn environment only to be murdered in front of his sister by an officer of the law. In front of his sister who called for help because he was having a mental episode because he had just lost a loved one to premature death. Broad daylight in front of her as she's telling them, do not kill my brother. And he is then blamed for it. So the most galling aspect is not 
only is this procession continuing, that, that necklace continuing to add beads, that old wine continually poured, but then the agent of that violence levies culpability against the object of that violence. So not only are you victimized, but then your victimhood is transmuted into criminality. What did you do? What did you steal? What was your record? Where were your hands? Why didn't you get up? Why didn't you get out? Where were, why were you breathing? So, Foucault's model of history did not take into account the modern aspect of chattel slavery, not as an anachronism, not as a pre-capitalist mode of production, but as, again, the very scaffolding upon which carceral modernity is based. If you look at the actual physical structures over time, the past is not past. It's an open wound that continues to open with every breath. $70 billion a year in this modern version of a long prison industrial complex going back to that ship pulling up to Jamestown. $70 billion of public monies to lock up a major portion of the public. I said 70% people of color, 99.9% poor. One out of three black boys born today will do time in a cage if things go at the rate they are, an 800% increase in the incarceration of black women since 1980. 18, from 1852 to 1989, prisons built in California. Anybody good at math? How many years is that? My, my undergrads in the house? 1852 to 1980, there were nine prisons built in what is now the prison capital of the world. 128, is it? years. From 1980 to 2005, 22 were built. There are more prisoners in California now than there were in the entire country in 1960. Did people start drinking criminal Kool-Aid in 1980? Where is that $70 billion a year going? And it's not just a matter of the profitability. It's a matter of controlling a population that was in mass uprise when Nixon made that call for law and order. Does that ring a bell? I seem to recall somebody running for some office using that same phrase recently, who will not be named. My son is very much into um, Harry Potter. So, <laughs> so a cargoing of human, of human beings that are branded as natural born criminals, it's not about what you did, it's about who you are. The, what Sylvia Winter describes as the ontological subordination of people of African descent, which means in the very being, there's a transmutation through law, through discourse, through media of our very being into something that is always justified homicide, always already. Or as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, always subject to premature death, defining racism materially at the level of the body, not at the level of whether somebody was nice to me today only, but at the level of will I make it to the end of this day? Will I actually survive? And that not being hyperbole, 
Now we have cameras to give us indication of something that many of us have always known and had to know in order to think about the possibility of surviving. If that makes some of you feel uncomfortable, imagine living that experience. One theorist said, because here we see, you know, I gave a lecture at California State University, Fullerton, the other day, and I mentioned, you know, a part of the prison industrial complex is about profit. Um, so you have companies like Victoria's Secret, for instance, having prisoners doing telemarketing. The entire California State University system, all the furniture that you would be sitting on if you were there right now was made by prison slave labor. So we know that story. But this picture gives you an indication of something else. And then there's also the unproductive labor, in quotes, of the pr prison as a plant. Just like the original plantation, the prison pl as plantation, there's not an element of it that does not require or demand labor by prisoners. Your good, your good conduct is dictated by whether you comply to doing all of the labor that makes the plant, the plantation go. So those are important, but it's not just about labor. It's also about what Gilmore and other scholars call human warehousing, or what Mumia Abu-Jamal calls the biggest public housing project in US history. What do you do with a population that whose labor is no longer needed, who did the grunt work of the Industrial Revolution, and who now, who, who would formerly have worked at a, say, a Chrysler plant in Flint or in Detroit, but now you've outsourced all of those jobs where you could pay slave wages in the global south. What do you do with that population? Thomas Jefferson's idea of what do you do with that population after they're no longer needed is to get rid of them. Cryptically, he said that. Cryptically. Maybe we can talk about this as a process of forced relocation and getting rid of uh, and, and human warehousing. And the theorist Stephen Donziger says, companies that service the criminal justice system need sufficient quantities of raw materials to guarantee long-term growth. In the criminal justice field, the raw material is prisoners, and it will do whatever it needs to do to guarantee a steady supply. So it's not the labor of the prisoner per se, but the prisoner's body as the nexus of profitability and power. You are the commodity, so you don't necessarily have to produce any, at least for those agents that are publicly trading on it. And not just private prisons. Get rid of that from your mind. Because going back to the original private prisons, that being the plantations, public interest, public law, state practice was always involved from the very beginning. So maybe I'll read a little bit. While Foucault barely makes mention of slavery in his compelling history of the modern prison, the writings, soundings, and survival practices of black prisoners define chattel slavery as primordial and tenaciously undead. A tenaciously undead regime of Euro-American modernity as the legal, political, architectural, and cultural linchpin of racial capitalist misogynist imprisonment in the United States as it has morphed from the slave ship holds and barracoons of the Middle Passage to the portable boxcar cages of early Jim Crow apartheid to the coffin simulating boxcar cells of today's prison industrial complex. 
Indeed, when red is one overarching cross-fertilizing and temporally unfixed network of terror, the U.S. system of mass imprisonment that began well before the term prison industrial complex was ever uttered is what Peter Tosh might called, call a liberal white supremacist system. that has produced as an, an as yet uncalculated number of premature dead. Notwithstanding the tendency within the U.S. juridical legislative and penal law to disavow the chattel origins of modern incarceration, there have been key moments in which postbellum liberal legal discourse has offered bold-faced articulation of the state's enslaving and murderous bearing towards criminally and racially stigmatized subjects. In Ruffin versus Commonwealth, Justice J. Christian of the Supreme Court of Virginia supplies just this sort of open declaration of the law's rechattelizing functionality vis-a-vis -vis former slaves and his ostensibly colorblind construction of the civilly dead non-position of the criminally branded felon. Quote, he has as a consequence of his crime not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights except those which the law and its humanity accords to him. He is for the time being a slave of the state. He is civilite mortis, civilly dead, and his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man." End quote. What would the law's incantatory proclamation of penal enslavement in respect to all criminally branded subjects? By the way, Ruffin was a white man, not wealthy, obviously, who was on a chain gang himself. What would this proclamation mean for those criminally branded subjects who had been defined as metaphysically incorrigible, legally fungible, which means tradable, and socially disposable for generations before 1871. As suggested earlier in my discussion of Angela Davis and others, this system of incarceration that was refabricated through the stroke of a pen of supposedly the law of emancipation is at the crux of carceral modernity. Far from representing a juridical anomaly or an anachronistic throwback to the feudal origins of Euro-American common law, Ruffin constituted an all-too-accurate racial gothic omen of the terroristic traje trajectories of modern imprisonment, as it has been waged against former slaves and putatively free black people, from convict leasing, to chain gangs, to peonage camps, to the prison plantation, to the penitentiary. In attempting, in attempting to offer an opening of address for the living dead and the dead of U.S. neo-slavery, however, this book considers what amounts to a collectively issued refutation of the organizing fascist logic within J. Christian's matter-of-fact pronouncement of the civilly dead status of the prison slave. That is, what the spectral voices, testimonies, and survival practices of black prisoners make clear is that racialized prison slavery has had little to do with the alleged criminal acts of individual black people and everything to do with the socially constructed crime of being born black in apartheid America. If, as Saidiya Hartman suggests, the grand narrative of emancipation continues to hold sway over our imagination, notwithstanding the form of chattelized legal and extra-legal terror that have prolifer proliferated in freedom's wake, 
Then the writings and soundings and life ways of black prison slaves from 1865 to the present offer a nearly inexhaustible, if largely unheeded, set of ghostly demystifications of that time-honored master narrative. I want to be clear here that when I use the term ghostly, I'm not speaking metaphorically. My use of the term is in keeping with Avery Gordon's vitally important assertion that in the name of social and historically, historical justice for the perilously alive and the desecrated dead, we must attempt to offer gracious, hospitable, and attentive listening to the countless material revenants that have accumulated under the long-standing criminal reign of racial capitalist misogyny. This book calls our attention to how the law's gothic transmutation of living, nominally rights-bearing human beings into slaves of the state has produced an unaccounted for excess in the form of a subterranean politics and poetics of the living dead. An unquietly buried assemblage of black neo-slave sound and theory that constitutes a haunting, unhistorical counter to the well-entrenched US national fable of slavery's 19th century demise. In a piece entitled, Teetering on the Brink Between Life and Death, Mumia Abu-Jamal offers just this sort of demystification of this narrative of progress in describing himself as being entombed, quote, in a juridical, psychic, and temporal box. This notion of the temporal box, of the solitary confinement cell shuttling the black captive in a time warp mode back into the experience of African captives of the past. If you read George Jackson's Soledad Brother, and I highly recommend that you do if you have not, there are prisoners that led the biggest hunger strike in world history who are suffering under decades of solitary confinement for just holding a copy of that book in their cell in California. Literally, I'm not making that up. Decades of solitary confinement for a book. What must be in that book? And who must those prisoners be that they're suffering that zero degree of neo-slavery? Mumia has this to say about that time shuttling. By the way, George Jackson said when he experienced his sixth and seventh year of solitary confinement that he felt just what the ancestors felt but more, cotton and corn growing out of my chest unto the 10th and 100th generation. I felt everything that they felt and more. Here's what Mumia says about this temporal box. The ultimate effect of non-contact visits is to weaken and finally sever family ties. Through this policy and practice, the state skillfully and intentionally denies those it condemns a fundamental element and expression of humanity, that of touch and physical contact and slowly erodes family ties already made tenuous by, by the distance between the home and the prison. Thus, prisoner, prisoners are as isolated psychologically as they are temporally and spatially. By state action, they become dead to those who know and love them, and therefore become dead to themselves. So this elaboration of living death that I spoke of earlier, I want to make clear that this theoretical elaboration, this theoretical gesture, is the product of the experien experientially born mode of analysis of prisoners themselves, not of me as I inhabit my office in the ivory tower. I try not to do that as much as possible. 
So, in this sense, the cellular zone of living burial and state murder preparation and familial rupture that Abu Jamal describes as the temporal box enacts both a time body freeze with the death simulating routine of imprisonment initiating a virtual, virtual stoppage of time and a time body warp wherein the civil death of penal entombment performs horrifying repetition of the social death of chattel enslavement. Those of you that are familiar with Orlando Patterson's work, um, Slavery and Social Death, recognize that he argues that world historical slavery, not, that, not just that which happened to Africans, because slavery, the root of the word, will tell you geographically, I know there's some ge geographers in the room, that it's a global phenomenon, that one of the things that combines slavery across world history is this severance of familial ties and lines of kinship. That that's the very condition of possibility to doing that kind of violence and that kind of rupture on a collective scale. But in the book, I also treat of the words of those that may be less familiar than Mumia Abu-Jamal and the way in which there is a kind of echoing back and forth in terms of this experientially born uh, analysis and demystification of the uh, plot of uh, neo-slavery across time. And one of them was offered by a woman named Mentha Morrison in the early 20th century. 1903, October, to President Theodore Roosevelt. Mr. President, dear sir, I write you this letter to inform you that my husband Jackson Morrison, colored, is being made to serve an unlawful term at Colonel James M. Smith's camp at Smithonia, Georgia, in Oglethorpe County. Events of the case. He was sentenced at Carnesville, Georgia, to the chain gang for 12 months from September 27, 1901, and to pay a fine of $100. He was bought out by Mr. Mose Jordan of Corner, Georgia, to whom he gave eight months, which made 20 months. Mr. Jordan, after working Morrison only two months, sold him to Colonel James M. Smith. This is 1903. On November 30th, oh, excuse me, 1901. Sorry, the date of the letter is 1903. Colonel Smith agreed to liberate Morrison on the 30th day of May, 1903. Count five, Colonel Smith also induced me to work by saying that if I labored on his farm, he would pay me for my work or else he would allow it to be credited to my husband's sentence in order to shorten his term, but he did not do either. I worked for 18 months hard labor and Colonel Smith did not pay me anything, neither did he credit me any of my time, that of my husband. I went to Colonel Smith's camp on November 30th, 1901 and stayed there until 1903 and worked all the time and when I left, he took all of my household possessions. My husband Jackson Morrison's time expired on May 30th, but Smith would not return turn him free. He, Morrison, worked until July 7th, on which day he left the camp. On September 11th, 1903, Morrison was captured by Smith's sheriff and carried back to the camp and then lodged in Lexington Jail in Oglethorpe County. Colonel Smith inflicts inhuman punishment on the person of his convicts and whips them unmercifully. Mr. President, I appeal, you, appeal to you as the executive head of our nation to please do something for my husband. Will you please cause an investigation of that camp to be made in the future? And while doing so, it will be found that there are numerous persons, both men and women, serving as slaves there for many months and days after their terms have expired. 
I have one child three years old, and I am in great need of my husband's assistance. I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant, Mentha Morrison. We will never know whether Mentha Morrison and her three-year-old son ever saw Jackson Morrison again. We will also never know the full breadth of unspeakable horror that is made to fall under the sign of inhuman punishment in section nine of her 10-point appeal to the president to do something about her husband's and her own enslavement. What we do know is that besides what she describes as the modern introduction of the antebellum punitive measure of the plantation whip, neo-slaves were routinely subjected to rape, long chaining, boxcar and stockade tight packing, can't to can't see labor and terror in the house, field, or mine, coppling over great distances, bloodhound maulings, outright, outright murder, and coerced musical and theatrical performance. What we also know is that similar to the overwhelming majority of cases in which black subjects attempted to make substantive use of late 19th and early 20th century legal proscriptions of debt peonage, Executive, legislative, and juridical arenas of US liberal law ultimately did absolutely nothing to redress the grievances of Mentha Morrison, her husband, or their newly fatherless child. In fact, as noted above in reference to Ruffin, these branches of US national law and governance are centrally implicated in each of the horrifying regimes of neo-slavery that occurred at places such as James Smith's 20,000-acre industrialized neo-slave plantation known as Smithonian also at the chain gang that he avoided going to by being bought out. You saw he was bought out through what was called the fine fee system. White subjects could go troll the courts and post the fines for people who were so poor that $1 would have been too much. And then he was resold over and over again and subleased. You may have heard of convict leasing by big corporations. Well, this is a lot smaller scale version of that that actually shows us that many of those millions of people that were called sharecroppers were actually prison slaves. So what was the legal condition of possibility for this process? The very amendment to the US Constitution that outlawed slavery. The very amendment, the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution that putatively outlawed slavery in the United States, reinscribed it through criminal sanction. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a, for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or territory subject to its jurisdiction. Four million people freed through their own devices. We talked about this earlier. There's a picture of W.B. Du Bois over there on the shelf, and I highly recommend that everybody read Black Reconstruction and everything else that he read, that he wrote. And in that book, in chapters like The Propaganda of History and others, The General Strike, he demystifies the notion that Abraham Lincoln was the great emancipator. He makes it clear that not only did slaves stand down on the slave plantation, even when Abraham Lincoln was not allowing them to go over to the Union lines and ordering generals to return them to their masters, not only did they commit what he called the general strike, but as a conservative estimate, over 250,000 black people, including the Honorable Harriet Tubman, were soldiers and exercised militant abolitionism 
So much so that the generals and Abraham Lincoln himself said without that militancy, that untold slave rebellion and revolution, the South would have won the Civil War. Go read your Du Bois. So, four million people who freed themselves then got legal sanction of that freedom that they won only to have the same document. I mean, M.A. Césaire talks about progressive dehumanization, progress and regression, progress and barbarism. You may have read Walter Benjamin. There is not a document of civilization that is not at the same time a document of barbarism. What is the biggest document of U.S. civilization more than the 13th Amendment? And look at what it did. And it's not hyperbole because someone that Massachusetts should be honored to have produced, the senator called Charles Sumner, the radical abolitionist, went to Congress with this document in around 1867. And if you read this document, you'll see that it's, even though it looks like millions of other ones just like it, there's one real big difference. It's an auction of slaves for a slave named Richard Harris. The undersigned will sell at the courthouse door in Annapolis, Maryland at 12 o'clock. Oh yeah, I forgot, public sale. Saturday, the 8th of December, 1866, a Negro man named Richard Harris for six months, convicted at the October term, term 1866 for larceny and sentenced to the court to be, by the court to be sold as a slave. Terms of sale, cash. William Bryan, sheriff, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. This was one of a number of ads that Charles Sumner talked about that day in Congress, because he had, when the 13th Amendment was argued about in Congress before it was passed, Charles Sumner said, hey, wait a minute, what about this whole accept as punishment for a crime situation? And one of the leaders of the committee he was on said, oh, Charles, it's much ado about nothing. So he comes back a couple of years later armed with evidence that it was not much ado about nothing. And he argued for an amendment to the amendment, which the, the prison strike that is going on right now across the country is taking up that um, charge to argue for taking out that exception clause out of the supposedly Emancipation Amendment. So people like Harriet Purdy, Gassaway Price and others, Harriet Purdy, by the way, who was sold around the same time as a slave um, for the, the crime of, of allegedly thieving a pair of gator boots from a lady, a lady. Of course, there's a, a racialization going on in that term lady versus Harriet Purdy's designation as the incorrigible black, sub, black woman subject. These auctionings started before the Civil War, and they were also happening not just in the Big Bad South, but all the way in, in the, the former North, Northwest Territories of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, except when they sold black people for doing horrible things like walking into the state. You heard of maybe the racial restrictionist laws. Um, you have to 
look into that history through Leon Litwack's book, um, North of Slavery. I would highly recommend that one. Is it Litwack? North of Slavery. And what it does is it demystifies the notion that something like the Black Codes is a Southern phenomenon and talks about how basically what we think of as Jim Crow was revolutionized in the North. Why? Because most, most free black subjects were actually in the North and you had to use the law to control that subject population. So black subjects that walked into the state of Illinois, there's a case called Nelson a mulatto against the state of Illinois. He was charged with physically being alive and coming to the state and sold as what they called euphemistically an apprentice. So again, this is not a story of exceptionalism in the South. One of the most clear-cut representations of this story that I mentioned earlier is Angola Plantation. And I just want to read one, one more section before we close, before I close. And I mentioned earlier that process of haunting. And I just want you to think about um, the way in which even legal codes, so that code of re-enslavement that I just read about there, the, the way in which the Maryland legal code was used to re-enslave someone like Richard Harris in 1866 was a, a throwback to 1858 and before, and then that code transmuting itself into the future in the way in which something like the Black Codes was used to re-enslave a, a large part of the population of the South. So that hauntingness that I talked about earlier being a part of the practice of white supremacist law. And in that regard, I just wanted to introduce you quickly to my experience of going to Angola Prison Plantation as a researcher. And as I approached the prison plantation, an 18,000-acre slave plantation that has never closed for, for business for one single day since the 19th century, I had what, what was in reality a, a feeling of nausea as, with every passing moment as I approached. And it, that nausea is nothing in comparison to all of the black subjects and until 1966, black women were held there. And I say black women because those were the only women to be found at Angola Prison Plantation. I asked myself how different a 25-year-old from the Lower Ninth Ward or New Orleans East or Shreveport could feel while being driven to Angola under a sentence of natural life than those such as Oloada Equiano or countless others from Africa's West Coast and hinterland who, as they approached the slave ship, were sure they were to be devoured by the crew awaiting them on the other side. I thought of this as I approached the place where two cent men, that's the amount of money that they're making in the fields, the, the pay, were bent over in the same fields as their ancestors have been for centuries. This picture is from 1999, I think, taken by a fellow prisoner. It's called King Cotton, this piece. And I asked myself how different they must have felt than those African commoners who were afraid of what was to befall them when they came and approached the slave ship and, as Equiano said, thought he was going to be eaten. But as I turned onto the highways called Highway 61 towards Angola, I didn't meet any protesters 
decrying the fact of slavery being alive and well. Uh, I mean, I ask myself, if in modern day Germany, Jew, people, Jewish folks were put into not just Auschwitz, but a fully operational Auschwitz, as a result of them being convicted of a crime, what would happen on the world, the world stage? What is it about the ontological and social position of black people in this country that makes that kind of dishonor and injury socially acceptable? So again, I did not see any protesters, and the ones I did see don't have or did not have enough political voice for that voice to be heard. What I did see was an assortment of highway billboards advertising romantic plantation bed and breakfast getaways aimed at capitalizing on tourist well-ingrained visions of a pastoral gallant and intriguing antebellum South. And by these kind of signs on the way, I was given unsettling evidence of a racist cultural order that allows for no prison plantation protesters, and that produces an immediate disqualification of those that, did, that do indeed stand defiant, defiantly at the gates of Angola and other US prisons. In fact, the other main explanation for my nauseous feeling as I came towards the plantation was my knowledge that aside from a smattering of family members coming to visit their loved ones, the only other civilian free persons I was likely to encounter as I pulled up to the penitentiary would be a subset of the thousands of tourists that Angola uh, uh, welcomes every year from all over the United States and Europe for events like the prison plantation rodeo where prisoners are made to perform in what I call in the book a plantation holiday. And if you've read your Henry Bibb, your Frederick Douglass, and all the other slave narratives talking about the central role and your Saidiya Hartman ruminating on these practices, she talks about it being a part of plantation management, the, the cultivation not only of an expropriation of labor, but the control and domination of those off times. And it's not, again, just about the production of crops, but the production of blackness as a lack of control over one's life and the production of whiteness as that ultimate control, even those fun times are owned. So here we have a picture of the rodeo. There's a game called convict poker where four prisoners are put into the ring and made to sit at the table while a bull gouges them over so in the winner gets something like fifty dollars but instead of thinking about this being a return of slavery it becomes a site of tourist enjoyment and here we have a young child with a chain gang replica shirt in a replica prison cage and as we shake our heads rightfully at this we have to think about the innumerable number of life inside the pen shows that we see on cable tv and all those A&E documentaries, and all the, like uh, even boondocks making fun of prison rape in, a, in an episode called Date with the Health Inspector. So this is not a story of Southern horrors. As Malcolm X said, anytime you're south of the Canadian border, you're south. And it's not a pre-modern story. Here are the post-modern cells that have been grafted onto the plantation fields where people like the Angola Three, who just recently we finally celebrated Albert Wood Fox's release, a Black Panther 
who organized inside the prison along with Robert Hillary King and the late Herman Wallace against the practice of prison rape being a de facto element of punishment and against the practice of making the prisoners of all colors go into the slave plantation fields. What did they get as a result? The Angola Three in the first Black Panther chapter to be found in a prison. They got, in Albert Woodfox's case, 44 years of solitary confinement. 44 years. He was just recently liberated. And so the theories that I propose in this book owe themselves to people like Wood Fox, Wallace, and King. Thank you. That was Dennis Childs, associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, recorded on October 13, 2016, at UMass Amherst. Childs is also the author of Slaves of the State, Black Incarceration from the Chain Gang to the Penitentiary. Next week, we'll hear from Steve Waxman, professor of music and American studies at Smith College. Waxman looks at the movement of jazz in America, from popular music to highbrow symphonic art. As a historian, one of the things that you fuss over is how do you define your terms, right? So jazz is one of those terms you can define a lot of different ways. Paul Whiteman is the guy who really, above all, pushes the move of jazz into the concert hall. There had been some precursors to this, and uh, there was an African-American orchestra leader in the 19-teens named James Reese Europe, very significant figure. As early as 1912, he hosted a series of concerts in Carnegie Hall. But he was really more a product of the ragtime era, so I don't think it makes sense to say he was doing jazz proper, and it's really a different line of development that led him to get into Carnegie Hall. By the 1920s, jazz was its own phenomenon. It had broken off from ragtime. It was something that was widely commented on and was a source of great social concern and no small amount of scandal. People were like kind of freaked out at how popular jazz was because it was seen as being overly sexualized, because it was seen as promoting undue amounts of commerce between African-Americans and white Americans. Um, there were a lot of reasons why the social impact of jazz caused social concern, which meant that for an artist like Whiteman who wanted to make jazz into something respectable, his term that he used at the time was he wanted to make a lady out of jazz. You've been listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio, a series of lectures from visiting and local speakers given and recorded at the five colleges. You can find more College Connection online at nepr.net or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. For New England Public Radio, I'm Casey Gilman.